0: one of the craziest Silicon Valley stories. And there's just so much to learn here. His story is fascinating. He failed out of Harvard, he beat cancer. He got fired from the first two startups that he built and co-founded and and grew. Um, And then he came back and built Rippling into a decacorn essentially it's in the you know many many billions at this point and has been growing phenomenally well over the last few years and so i wanted to go into his history and really understand what drives him how did he get here the full story of what happened a lot of people in silicon valley followed the zenefits story i know i did it was it was huge news um, when it broke but before that, he had an entire career as a, as a founder and entrepreneur and I, I think that there's a bunch of interesting stuff that we can learn from that. And then also he has one of the most fascinating frameworks for how to build a modern enterprise software as a service company. He calls it the compound startup and uh, it's just a completely different way of thinking about how to build a company. And I think we'll learn a lot from that even if you're not in enterprise SaaS. But he's basically a guy who's just been building extremely boring things for a very long time. And he's gotten really, really good at it. And I just love it because he's somehow the most entertaining and inspiring and and like powerful person in the most boring of industries. And there's so much to learn here. So I'm really excited for this. So. Uh, So Parker uh, was born in New York City in 1980. Uh, His mom ran an environmental nonprofit and his dad was a senior partner at Davis Polk, a huge law firm, a really, really big law firm. I think it's like the third most profitable law firm on a per-partner basis. Andrew Yang worked there, Jerome Powell worked there. Uh, actually, my colleague John Ludig, his dad worked there at the same time as Parker Conrad's dad, which is kind of crazy, because uh, John Ludig will go into what he's r- done in, the, in later in this uh, episode, but uh, he wrote a whole breakdown of how Rippling works. And uh, I guess their dads worked at the same firm at the same time in New York City. And so Parker, uh, he went to a, a prestigious Upper West Side preparatory school called the collegiate school and uh it's actually the city it's the city's oldest school it was founded in 1628 that is extremely old for a high school i can't imagine going to a school that old um but it's a it's a super prestigious school but he's not a super type a you know student just focusing on getting good grades but he is driven and so he spent nearly two full years during high school studying the neurobiology of sea snails which you know obviously that has nothing to do with enterprise SAS but It kind of does if you abstract it to the point of like, he's not afraid to focus on something really boring for a very long time, I guess. Um, But the craziest thing about that is that he won $20,000 doing this, which is a ton of money for a high schooler. And so he enters this Westinghouse Science Talent Search, um, which is the nation's top contest for aspiring scientists. It's a really, really big deal. And he gets third place, and he gets a $20,000 scholarship because of it. And the New York Times runs this article about how, the talent search and who won that year. And it's funny cause he didn't win. He came in third, but, he gets the top billing in the New York Times article. Like In the article, they lead with the story of Parker because he has all these really, really spicy quotes and clearly he just impressed the reporter who was writing the article. And this was when he was 17, so this is, I guess, 97 or something like that. And uh, there's this hilarious quote in it. It says, Mr. Conrad, even though he's basically a child they refer to him as mr conrad mr conrad speaks as passionately about the size of the federal government and the united states conflict with iraq as he does about the neurotransmitters resting in the gray matter of his precious sea snails mr conrad who describes himself as a conservative and is also the captain of the school's debate team has not yet decided whether he will study politics in college or pursue a career in science politics kinds of kind of fascinates me he said yesterday it can be used for just about anything good or evil and it's just so funny that this is like what he was saying to a new york times reporter at age 17. uh and obviously he has a whole back and forth with the media he's been a hero he's been cast as a villain um and it's fascinating to see And, and there's a whole thread of like his interactions with the media that we'll we'll see throughout this story so despite uh, this early display of, you know, an evident talent for science. Um, you know, Parker, he's not super focused on high school grades, but because of the science competition, he gets into Harvard because he's, he's kind of known as this, like, the person who won this really, really prestigious prize. And so he goes to Harvard, um, and he's really just focused on progress over performative activities. So he doesn't care about getting grades. He cares about actionable things. So he joins the Harvard Crimson, the campus newspaper, and it's, you know, it's not like a normal campus newspaper. The Harvard Crimson's like super super serious. Like Steve Ballmer was on the board or was in the Crimson, Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube also jfk and like a million other people but um he's just obsessed with the work like again he's all about like getting results doesn't care about any of the vanity metrics and so he's grinding at the crimson like 70 hours a week just insanely focused but he focuses on it way too much gets totally distracted fails all of his classes and he fails out of harvard and so you know, he's, he, he doesn't go to class, he fails out of school, and it's like this really humiliating moment for him. And it's kind of like this shocking experience. Um, but he cleans himself up, he gets back into Harvard, and he graduates. And and then after college, he moves to San Diego, and he gets a job at Amgen as a product manager. And Amgen is this massive, massive company. Uh, it was started in the 1980s. It's, called, it's an abbreviation of Applied Molecular Genetics. Uh, it was actually created by a US, the US venture partners, Bill Bowes, um, and the biggest products that they produce, it's a biotech company, they produce tumor blockers and drugs to help prevent infections during cancer chemotherapy. And Parker describes the life as really good. He said, I had a great stable life where I was living two blocks from the beach in Santa Monica. It felt like a big star in the company. I was very, very junior, but it felt like I was moving up and getting lots of attention. Um, and then something really crazy happens. Just a year into the job in 2004, he gets testicular cancer and he beats it. And um, and so it's unclear if that like was a real turning point or whether that really opened his eyes, but clearly he's not cut out for you know, this traditional corporate ladder at Amgen. It's a big company at this point. It's you know, 30 years old at this point, or twenty to over 20 years old, and he wants more. So he gets a call from his old college roommate, Mike Shaw, and Mike had studied computer science and gotten a master's at Harvard. And he'd been working at Amazon since 2001. And this was like early post.com days. Um, the, you know, Amazon's moving really, really quickly. And Mike was working on the FinTech side of the business. And so, This is the beginning of a trend where Parker finds great technical talent to co-found his companies with. Um, But with this one, he really got the structure wrong and we'll see how that kind of plays out. But let's go first into like the actual company. So um, Parker and Mike, they used to day trade stocks in the Harvard dorms. Uh, This is years before Robinhood and Wall Street Bets, but you know, they're, they're, they're buddies. And they come up with this idea to create a Wikipedia for stock research. And it's a reasonable idea. I just had a biotech investor the other day kind of ask me Uh, if anyone was building something like this, because research is still very fragmented. You know, you have to read SEC filings, listen to earnings calls, find good research reports, maybe subscribe to TGS if you listen to podcasts, you know, uh, do expert consultations, like talk to people, do primary research, build models. And now there's all these different companies that are doing this stuff. But back then, there wasn't really any one place for, you know, financial research. and so, in 2007, uh, he leaves Amgen with, you know, no money. He's basically broke, and they incorporate a company called Wikinvest, Wiki Invest. Wiki um, Invest, and in, and they run that for four years, and it's an absolute slog. Like, they do make some solid progress. The company does scale a little bit, but it's super rough. I think at the peak, while well, Parker was there, it was like 40 people. They raised 10 million in VC, but not from really like major investors. Uh, they do their 2.5 million dollar series a from dcm ventures which i actually hadn't heard of but apparently they backed bill.com sofi matterport fubo tv like some solid overseas companies too and they have 4 billion in aum <laughs> i guess they're just a really quiet firm they're not on twitter or something so i've never heard of them um but um, they 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 eventually changed the name to Sigfig Significant Figures. Uh, so I'll just refer to it as Sigfig from here on out. Um, and Sigfig is basically a robo advisor that consumers can use to make investment decisions. Uh, and then they also white label this to Wells Fargo, UBS, and other banks. So when you go into one of those banks and you want to you know invest, uh, the the Sigfig platform can kind of surface investment ideas for you, and then you can you can choose how you want to allocate your portfolio. Um, and they have this really really funny story when they moved to san francisco uh parker you know they're broke they're trying to save money typical early stage startup story uh they actually go and live in an old folks home in walnut creek uh you know not not exactly like trendy san francisco uh it was called the Rossmore retirement community his co-founders grandparents had a uh, i guess mike shaw's grandparents had an apartment that they weren't using but the parker and mike the two co-founders they had to sneak in and out because no one under 65 was allowed to live there you know it's just like one of those crazy ways to keep burn low but like i love this like i when i moved to silicon valley in 2012 i lived in absolute squalor you know i told people i moved to san francisco but really i was living in sunnyvale and it was just there was nothing going on in the town it was super dead and it was great for grinding. Like there was nothing to do. So you just stayed inside and built your startup and learned to code and all that stuff. It was great. Um, but Parker, I don't think he liked it because he said, uh, We lived there for about six months. It was by far the worst six months of my life. There was a store outside of Rossmore that was literally called a better denture right outside the gate. Uh, it's a funny story now. but I I sort of felt like my life fell off a cliff. (laughs) I had this great life living situation in Santa Monica, a great job. Suddenly, I'm living in the old folks' home, trying to do something like God knows what to get something off the ground, not having any idea what we're doing. And yeah, I mean, he's not on like the traditional like venture track. He's not, you know, this Silicon Valley darling. He's really, really scraping to get something going. But you know, one year into the company, they made some progress and they built this solid data pipeline. They cover almost 2000 companies and they have over a a thousand contributors that are adding data and they also built a syndication service for financial bloggers to help them share their finance takes so if you if you're familiar with like seeking alpha this is something where like anyone who has an idea about a stock can kind of write it up and then seeking alpha will will send that out and it it sounds like sigfig kind of did the same thing even though i didn't use the service um actually maybe i did see it at some point but i don't know um and, and they kind of funnel the data into two different areas. One is uh, w- when you're a contributor, you know, it's like a wiki style uh, service. So anyone can go on and, and add information. You can either contribute to companies or concepts. So concepts might be things like interest rates or macro trends or, you know, uh, currency fluctuations, whereas companies, you know, Apple, Google, obviously. Um, and I think this is the start of Parker's, you know, insane focus on w- w- what is probably i, I don't know I, i've been calling like the atomic unit it's like the fundamental data structure at the heart of the product and so for twitter that's the tweet and and everything stems from the tweet and then the over time they expanded what a tweet could be it could include images it could include videos it could be longer it could expand it could have different features to it but the atomic unit was that tweet and and twitter was really focused on like everything everything on the platform needs to be a, a tweet and even for a while dms were just tweets. They were saved in like the same database. They just started with DM, and it was all one big table, which is crazy, but uh, there's, there's something about like that focus on the atomic unit that helps accelerate uh, products, at least digital products. Um, and so later, Zenefits and Rippling would both hone in on the employee record as their atomic unit, and we'll go into those companies obviously later. Um, so in 2011, he's 31 years old. He's the founder of WickInvest and he, you know, gets married. And uh, there's this funny uh, article, uh, you know, wedding announcement. It lists that his wife graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, and, uh, and Parker he just graduated <laughs> because obviously he wasn't super focused on um, on grades or anything like that. But um, the the company they've been grinding this for you know years at this point, and. And they're making some progress. I mean, they've scaled to like 40 people, but they're just never getting traction with any venture capitalists. They're not really scaling. And they—I mean, Parker has a falling out with his co-founder, Mike Shaw. And part of it was that they had this weird structure where they were co-CEOs. And that's always difficult because you need to understand like where who makes the final decision on something. You can't just be split on everything. And then this was compounded by the fact that Mike's family put in a whole bunch of money at, to keep the company going. And part of the agreement was that Mike would become the sole CEO. So, um, and after that, you know, Parker and Mike really start kind of beefing. And then not after, not long after that, Mike fires Parker. And um and Parker says like, to make the situation really bad, he stayed around for another year working at the company, closing out some deals and finishing up some stuff, which was incredibly unpleasant. Um, so the site rebrands from WikInvest to SigFig and, uh, and they kind of you know, go about their way and, and, and scale up. And w- the, the original Wiki product gets phased out even though it has 400K users. Um, but you know, I'm sure there's some good lessons in kind of scaling a, you know, an actual application and learning how to you know, develop a product for a very long time. And this is kind of remembered as a footnote in Parker's history. People just think about Rippling and then they think about Zenefits, but you know, I'm sure that he, he got a lot of solid operating experience here even though when you ask him like what, what was the biggest lesson from you know th- this failure he, he always replies no matter how many different interviews have asked him he always just says the only thing that I've learned about failure from failing is that failure sucks and you should try and avoid it <laughs> that gives this like very generic answer it's very funny um, and, and he thinks that like maybe you shouldn't glorify failure you should just like focus on not failing which is reasonable um, the the interesting thing about sig fig is that um you know parker is this like larger than life character in silicon valley now and goes on to do zenefits which is very high flying and now rippling's huge but sig fig actually goes on and and seems like it's doing pretty well like uh, after parker leaves they raised 15 million dollars from bain capital and union square ventures like two great firms and then uh later they actually went on to raise 120 million dollars in total they got money from General Atlantic, uh, which is a great growth equity firm. I, I actually know some people at Founders Fund who came from there and I don't know if SigFig is gonna be like a massive company, but um, it's just crazy that no one talks about this company because uh, it was co-founded by Parker Conrad. Um, and they haven't raised money in a while, but it seems like business is going well and they have like a nice little like white label product and they're baked into a lot of banking partnerships and stuff and it seems like the business is, is up and running and going, uh, which is very interesting to see that even though it was like a failure in Parker's early career, the company itself is not a failure and maybe they were onto something together, I don't know. But anyway, before Parker and Mike split up. Up. They learned they did learn some important lessons ab- about failure, even though Parker, you know, won't admit them. Um, so SigFig, they go and they pitch Coastal Ventures, and the investor that they're pitching is asking for some sort of complicated analysis, uh, you know, probably some like CAC to LTV cohort thing that they just didn't have handy. And uh, and the investor says, "Like, look, if you were the Twitter guys, you wouldn't need any of this. We would just invest." Um, and and so, so um, Parker, you know, the investor was basically trying to say that, like, look, if you're if you're this like runaway success, these like famous founders like Twitter. Um, you wouldn't need to do all this like analysis because we'd just be able to use the product. We'd see that it's massively successful, and we just back you. Um, but you, since you guys are this unknown quantity or this like you know rough and tumble startup that's been grinding for a few years, like you need to come in here with really buttoned up analyses. You need to really have your numbers down. And, and Parker <laughs> says he took the opposite lesson, which was not that he should do you know the, all these complicated analyses. It was that he should just be like the Twitter guys. <laughs> there's a bunch of different ways to, to read into this like okay it's kind of hard to like go back and just like be a successful founder but i think i think what he's getting at is that it's like twitter had such strong product market fit that even though it was a complete mess like there's this famous quote about i think zuck said that the twitter was like a clown car that drove into a gold mine like they should be making a ton of money but the but the company was really poorly run. And they had the fail whale, like the, the site was going down all the time. And there was all this co-founder conflict that's been really dealt well, well documented in that Nick Bilton book, uh, Hatching Twitter. And so even though Twitter was like a mess, VCs kept funding it every time they came out to raise because it didn't matter 'Cause everyone was using the service and it was growing like weed. So and and even then later, like, you know, the company IPO'd as a deck of corn and it was a great outcome for all the VCs that were involved. So I think the I think the takeaway from like be the Twitter guys is like just make sure you have like such strong product market fit that that no one's digging into like these complicated analysis and you're not you're not bending over backward to like make someone squint and be like, maybe there is a good business here. It's just like The business is obviously great. Everyone knows it's it's undeniable that the business is good. And so in in September of 2012, Parker is fully out of SigFig now and he launches Zenefits. And he had about $20,000 saved up from his exit. But importantly, his wife had a job so they could live on her salary while he tried to get the company going. And there was a ton of attention on healthcare at this time. but there was a big question about how startups could actually capitalize on what was going on in healthcare so uh the obamacare had just recently passed and it was clear that kind of the way that bill was so massive it was like the first big piece of legislation that the obama administration did and it changed a lot about the industry um i remember talking to jonathan bush uh who's i think george bush's cousin and he's the founder of athena health this electronic medical records company and he saw that healthcare reform was coming because he's like a part of the political elite and he actually voted for obama and then built an electronics records company that wound up being worth billions um, because he understood that the uh, industry was changing and there were going to be these mandates to move to electronic health health records. And in the same, actually in the same month that Zenefence launched, Oscar Health started, um, which was, you know, designed to sell insurance directly to consumers because of the new insurance mandates. And so there were a, a lot of people thinking about healthcare during this time, but you needed a really interesting and unique approach. And Parker had a bunch of Experience in this space loosely. I mean, of course, he had the crazy experience of beating cancer, so he probably cared about healthcare more than most people his age. Like, you know, most 30 somethings are just like, I I go to the doctor when I'm, you know, when I bump my leg or something. But uh, he had actually been through the medical, uh, you know, the medical system pretty seriously, so he understood that. And then he also had to felt the pain of like solving healthcare problems in a corporate HR setting because at SIGFIG, They had about 30 employees but they were still too small to hire an hr person so he was doing it all himself and there were these weird weird problems that he'd run into like the only way he could enroll a new employee into his insurance program was to fax a form and the company like sigfig didn't have a fax machine like most companies don't so he had to go to kinko's to do that because the company didn't have the fax machine and so he he understood that like this was just a pain point in many many ways but he needed kind of an, an interesting wedge and an interesting go-to-market. So he'd so so he solved that, but then he also needed a co-founder <laughs> because, again, he's not a technical guy. He studied bio. He's on the Harvard Crimson. Um, he's not a programmer. So he... Finds He he meets his uh, co-founder, Lox Srini, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but Locks is an incredible guy too. Uh, he grew up in Chennai, in India. He was a programmer at age 10. He got a computer science masters, and then he went to work for D.E. Shaw, which is this big time uh, New York hedge fund that I think Jeff Bezos uh, worked for before he started Amazon. and locks is not like a big like wall street trader guy i think he's just on the tech team Um, but while he's there he builds this system to automate filing of fund documents so every time Every time De Shaw wants to kind of instantiate a new fund, they need to file a bunch of paperwork, and it's all really manual. And so they're big enough that Locks comes in and kind of figures out how to automate a lot of that with software. So you know, obviously, you can see how like automating a bunch of paperwork for the government is very you know relevant to healthcare filings and what they wind up doing at Zenefits. Um, And so uh, Locks had worked at D.E. Shaw from 2005 to 2011. Then he got a job at Sigfig in 2011 and he worked from Singapore and then moved to Silicon Valley at the end of 2011. And that's where he meets Parker Conrad. And then when Parker has the falling out with Mike Shaw, his co-founder, he pulls Locks into the next startup, Zenefits, as a co-founder. And this is interesting because like he it's a big promotion for locks because he wasn't a co-founder of the first company, but then he gets the co founder at the second company. And it just shows you that like Parker really respects like great engineers and understands that like it's important to partner on like equal titles, big equity. Like I I, I think everyone that Parker has co-founded a company with has gotten like a really really huge equity grant even if they don't stay forever um they 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 wind up doing very very well because Parker really respects that like building one of these big software organizations requires having like great engineering leadership from day one and so um another thing that kind of speaks to like Parker's you know, respect for the programmer, which I think is really, really important at these startups. It's it's always bad when some CEO is like, hey, programmer, just go build this. Like, you are just a coder. Like, I I just want it done. Like, I don't understand your craft. I don't understand how hard what you do is. Um, After they launched Zenefits, Parker actually taught himself Python to to code, Um, like just enough to build an early version, like very light. Um, And, you know, he was definitely like, um, he was non-technical at the first company, but he wanted to kind of shake off that label and learn like just enough code to to understand how to be somewhat technical, which I think earns you a lot of respect when you're hiring engineers as a CEO of a tech company, which I, I highly recommend to a lot of people who are uh, starting a tech company but don't know how to code. It's like, just learn enough so that you can check the box and be somewhat technical and understand like the basics you can like speak the same language as the people you're going to be working with and earn some respect like it's not that hard you can learn to code like pretty quickly at least the basics um and so zenefits launches in 2012 and they joined y combinator they're in the yc winter 2013 batch which i think starts like december of the prior year and then runs maybe january february Um, and interestingly there's another company in the batch doing the exact same thing as Zenfits And that, that company's called Simply Insured. And Simply Insured's actually still alive, seems to be running. It seems like they have a couple dozen employees, seems like they're doing fine. Um, but Parker and Locks go to prototype day, which is this day before demo day at, y- at YC, where you show off your product and you just give a demo to all the investors and then they kind of rank you at the end. And it's a big it's a big milestone for the company to try and show, okay, here's what we've built. It actually works. This is what we're gonna show to customers and potentially investors. Um, but the Zenefits app just crashes. Like they just, they hadn't checked the code that day or something and they had some bug that, so nothing works. So they get basically disqualified. Like they don't rank, no, one, no, no investors really think that they're doing that great. But their competitor simply insured crushes it and they tie for the number one best startup of the batch. So all of a sudden, they're like, Zenefits is like, uh, I don't know what's gonna happen. We're like kind of a joke in this batch and Simply Insured is like number one and they're doing the exact same thing. Anyone who wants to invest in this insurance, tech, company, market, HR, software thing, they're just gonna put money in Simply Insured. Why would they ever put money in us? So it's it's a big risk for them. And so Parker and Locks are terrified and they decide to go and grind late nights for like the next week to step things up. And they just keep, keep working. And and they find a couple really key insights. So the first is that idea of the atomic unit, which we talked about before. Like the employee record is the atomic unit that will unlock so much of what they do. So even though they're an insurance broker and they're selling insurance, the real key is, is having zenefits be the first place where the employee is represented and this is the database where the the employee record is represented Um, most people just keep their employees in like a spreadsheet before this but um, that was a really key insight and then that would unlock this compound startup approach which. Parker has kind of you know popularized now but the idea is basically instead of building a point solution like just a solution that solves one particular problem, you actually need to build lots of products simultaneously and it's really complicated and so we'll go into the compound startup approach like later um, And then also scaling engineering is really critical. Um, they have a bunch of interesting ways to get around this they hire internationally very quickly obviously they P- Parker found a technical CEO or CTO to co-found the company with him. Um, And then the other interesting takeaway was, or insight was that insurance offered this great wedge because you get paid a fee upfront as the broker. And so now you can offer software for free and it doesn't feel like anything to the customer or the company. And this had never been bundled before. Like insurance brokers, it was just a guy with a phone or a company and then the software provider who you use to manage your employees or anything else would charge you for a license to that software or subscription fee. It was just a completely separate thing. So putting these two things together was a really unique insight because it allowed them to basically get everyone using their software, still make a ton of money, but it wouldn't feel like they were making a ton of money because the companies weren't paying a subscription fee essentially. and so. Parker, you know, he just wanted to eliminate faxes um, when when he started the company, but once he starts talking to insurance brokers, he realizes how much money they're making. It's something like they take a 5% cut of the entire US healthcare insurance industry, which is massive. I think it's like a 5% cut of 18% 18% of US GDP or something. It, it, it's, it's like a massive, massive market. And so th- they have to figure out a way to, to capture that. And they, and they do it with this, with this um, you know, where they act as the broker, they get the fee, and then they give the software away for, uh, away for free. And so once Locks and Parker have figured all those points out, they start scaling like crazy and the site is no longer crashing. They have plenty of people and money and the next couple years are insane. 2013, they do 1.2 million in revenue, they have 15 employees. 2014, they do 20 million in revenue, they have 400 employees. Then 2015, they do 70 million in revenue and have 1,700 employees. Like that is just a massive company for being two years old. I think uh, he got asked on stage something about like how many people he was hiring and I think he was hiring like three people a day. Uh, and, they hi- and they hired a bunch of people just to manage all of that. Tons of recruiters and stuff. And at one point, hiring engineers was hiring engineers fast enough was the bottleneck. So we ran global hackathons. We invited the top thirty people to SF, paid for their tickets, and gave them jobs. <laughs> we set up an office in Vancouver, a melting pot of cultural and tech talent from around the world. That's, that's Locke's talking about the early engineering scaling. Um, so they're just hiring people in like massive quantities. And And also sales is a massive piece of this. Like Zenefits is trendy, but founder led sales won't work forever. I remember I had been in the batch immediately previous to zenefits and parker actually personally onboarded me to my m- m- onboarded my first company onto zenefits when he went through yc and he would reach out to every single yc company personally like from his email and he's just a machine um and would and would just talk and answer questions and i mean to this day his i think his linkedin title is customer support because he's, he just is obsessed with the customer um and so he needs to scale sales in his team because obviously like just the the, the awareness on like TechCrunch is not going to get him in every company, and so he hires this guy, Sam Blonde. Um, and Sam is like an enterprise SaaS sales legend now. I actually work with him at Founders Fund. Uh, he's a partner, and uh, he was at EchoSign before, which had sold to Adobe, another enterprise SaaS company. And he's just crazy good at scaling enterprise sales, and every time he does a podcast, uh, everyone who's in like enterprise SaaS like, uh, eats it up because they're obsessed with this, like, tactics, because uh, he's really, really good at this stuff. And they wind up hiring a ton of sales reps They scale out a new office in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's cheaper to hire salespeople. And they, like, Zenefits never really cares about geolocation. Like, they have a hub in SF, and the VCs are there, obviously. But then they have engineering in India and Toronto, where the engineers are, and they have Phoenix, where the sales guys are. And they just kind of, they just kind of do do whatever they can to, to grow the company. And the growth is just insane. I, I think the revenue was growing faster than Salesforce in the early days or any other big tech company that had come before it. And so everyone thought this was going to be a generational company. And it's crazy how fast Parker became just like a made man in Silicon Valley. Like he started the company in 2013 and in 2014, Sam Altman invites him to the class that Sam is teaching at Stanford called How to Start a Startup. And Parker is sitting there next to Mark Andreessen and Ron Conway, like two absolute legends in venture. And, and, Parker had been grinding for six years on this first company, SigFig, and got nowhere. And then in one year, he's just like exploded and is speaking at Stanford alongside these like venture legends. It's like such a quick turnaround. And so um, Zenefits goes on this like insane funding spree, where they do YC in early 2013, then they do a seed round, they get two million shortly after Demo Day. Venrock and Maverick get kind of like the credit, but I think Gary Tannen initialized came in, which will become important later in the story because he's a big rippling guy. Um, And then six months later, January 2014, $15 million Series A from Andreessen Horowitz. Another six months go by $67 million Series B from Andreessen again, they're doubling down. And then a year later in May of 2015, there's a $500 million Series C from Fidelity and TPG. And this was, you know, eight years before the craziness that happened in like COVID 2021, like the crazy bull market, like $500 million rounds for two-year-old companies were not happening at this time. It was insane. And everyone in Silicon Valley was like, what is going on at Rippling? This Or what is going on at Zenefits? This is insane. Um, and I mean, I actually used the same lawyer as him at the, at the time. Um, with the same lawyer, and I was asking about like, like oh man, what's the due diligence like on a uh, on a Series C of that size? Like it must be. I thought it would scale linearly with the with the dollars that were coming in, but that's actually not how these deals work. If you're putting five hundred million dollars into a company, you typically set what's called the uh, like the threshold of relevance um, or what is material. And so if you're putting five hundred million dollars into a company, you don't really care if you know. One, a $1,000 invoice is wrong by a hundred bucks. But if you're putting $10 million into a company that's doing a million dollars in revenue, like you absolutely care if that $100,000 invoice is like accurate. And so like they're raising so much money so quickly that there's not a huge burden on the company and these deals can get done really, really quickly. Um, and there's just like so much heat on the company that that everyone's able to just like you know just pile into this company because everyone kind of sees hey the 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 strategy is working companies are adopting this they're growing this very very quickly and um, sky's the limit it's just a massive massive market and Parker's of course talk, talking not only about the healthcare insurance brokerage but taking over all of HR and so it's just a it's a massive market extremely high growth and vcs are super excited but scaling has challenges and systems start breaking down and problems start cropping up everywhere so in the middle of 2015 everything looks amazing but by the end of the year the narrative had completely turned and parker had gone from this like untouchable superhero to like this super villain in the media and it's something that's like really really annoying that happens in the press where people are either like the best or the worst there's no room for like nuance or anything in between um when in fact a lot of times it's like these people are just grinding for a long time and you know um they're doing their best, um, so I think the best way to tell the story of like what happens with Zenefits in 2015, 2016 is with this series of articles that come out from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this reporter Rolf Winkler um, is covering the company, and basically, any time that there's an, a story breaks, he's writing it up in the Wall Street Journal. And so um, there's there's this article just to give you an idea of kind of like where the narrative was turning uh, right after they raised that round buzzfeed covers it and then uh, a few weeks later they run this story zenefits is an hr rocket ship but some customers get left behind and so buzzfeed's running this like kind of weird story highlighting customers that had problems with zenefits and like there probably were problems like they highlight some customer who like the system messed up and their employee wasn't able to get health care on time or something and this stuff happens it's kind of unclear it just it was just kind of like out of context for buzzfeed because they're like a listicle company that you know posts like cat pictures but all of a sudden they're like writing like negative tech content which is very very odd um but and then they they, they cover this other thing in september of 2015 a startup bids farewell to its fifteen thousand dollar a month desert mansion and it's like really really like hyped up to be like this like ridiculous like expense but again it's like this company had $500 million and they're opening an expansion office in um, in Phoenix or, or Arizona. And so instead of just paying for hotels constantly, they rented a house and it was like a five bedroom house and then the employees could like stay there. This is like not that uncommon and it actually makes a lot of economic sense. And it's like a cooler, vibe so that your employees can go land and they bond and then they can go out and like like most companies that are fast growing like might do this it's not that unreasonable um but uh like they run this article just like about like oh they're not renewing their lease and it's like well, yeah, they probably got the office up and running and then they didn't need it anymore. So they're just like, the the media starts like really shifting on Zenefits. And then uh, November of 2015, there's this article in the Wall Street Journal about how Zenefits is missing revenue targets. Um, But these targets were insanely high and it's hard to judge how quickly revenue fell short. And Parker did later publicly say that like the sales targets were hard hard to hit. Um, And the company had just 10X in valuation. And so it's kind of unclear where this information comes from. Like maybe it was leaked. Maybe some investor was like upset. Um, but that's kind of the start of this, you know, this like march of negative press that happens. So November 25th, 2015, startup Zenefits under scrutiny for flouting insurance laws. And this is kind of like one of the bigger stories that kind of gets traction in the tech press um basically zenefits had had this um software that let um that let insurance brokers um pass their coursework very quickly it would kind of like just wiggle the mouse to make sure that um the the automated software wouldn't uh w- would like check the box that you actually watched the tutorial or something like that and it's one of those hacks that you could imagine a lot of early stage startups doing probably shouldn't be doing it at a multi-billion dollar company. Um, But this is like the textbook, like, you know, move fast and break things. Um, And it's interesting because I'm split on this. Like, it it does seem like they broke the law and they broke the rules and it's bad. But at the same time, like, now that we have, like, the full data on what happened, um, the, 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 the fine was $7 million. And they didn't even have to pay the full... Seven million up front. They only had to pay half of it, and then the other half would be waived if they passed the exams. And it also wasn't so, it wasn't existential to the business financially. It was like a pretty small speeding ticket type of thing. And then this is not healthcare, it's like healthcare insurance. So it's not like they were flaunting medical advice, medical advice, and like, this isn't a Theranos situation where patients were being harmed because of this like workaround. Um, Definitely broke the rules, definitely need to pay the fine, but unclear, like, was this a company destroying event? Um, And there were some other, there were some other stories, something about, you know, paying employees who who left and had back if they had like back pay from vacation that they hadn't taken the zenefits would just be like hey here sign this document we'll give you 5k We'll take care of it and it like wasn't in compliance so they had to pay a fine on that and they're just like moving really really fast and then there's this other weird debate that happens where a lot of the local states start getting really upset with how zenefits is is kind of running their business so basically uh the, wa- the state of washington says that like zenefits can't can't keep giving away software for free um, because there's these consumer protection rules where insurance brokers can't give the insurance payment like the the cut that they get that five percent fee they can't give that back to the customer in order to Compete on price, or or win, or like win a deal as a kickback. Uh, That's illegal, and so that's not what Zenefits was doing. They weren't taking the money from the insurance deal, from the insurance brokerage, and then giving it to the company. They were just giving free software away, which was kind of like payment in kind, but it was basically legal i think legal in most states but it was kind of up for debate and they lost they lost one case in utah and then they actually got that reversed and then it seems like insurance brokers were basically complaining and saying hey we we keep losing to zenefits you got to put a stop to this and so a lot of the states state legislatures started like cracking down on zenefits and then of course it didn't help that zenefits became like this really controversial startup and everyone was like you know upset about them and there was a lot of negative press and so Um, there was also like this crazy thing where in their building, uh, some like the, the, the landlord found a condom and sent an email to everyone that worked in the building saying, like, this is unacceptable. And then Zenefits passed that along to everyone at their company. But then it leaked and it made it sound like Zenefits was like this crazy, like, sex-charged place. And it's kind of unclear if it was even Zenefits employees. Like, no one ever got to the bottom of, like, who did this and, and what was going on. But Zenefits, like, kind of, you know, took the brunt of the of the. Of the attention from the media because they were the only company that anyone knew in that building but it was kind of inconclusive what was going on so um clearly like this hard charging you know you know intense work culture was like you know just wrong place wrong time basically and tons and tons of negative articles buzzfeed the wall street journal everyone's making this company out to be like the worst thing ever all of a sudden and so parker has to resign and the story of like how this happens is just crazy like admittedly like things do seem crazy at the company like they've just grown so much they have so much money and um this is also just a crazy era for startups like one year almost to the date of of the zenefits controversy the, like that's the start of the uber controversy and so like this the, the cultural zeitgeist was getting much more conservative around how how businesses operated and 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 there was this feeling that like okay these startups yeah they it, it, it's one thing when it's like a couple people in a house just like building a fun app but when you're doing you know, business with real companies and you're actually massive and you have, you know, pension fund money and billions of dollars are at stake, like, like, you know, the, the, the general consensus in the media was, was that like uh, this, we, like, we got to professionalize essentially. And so. The board basically wants Parker to take a leave of of absence and they're gonna bring David Sachs from COO, uh, who had joined the company like a couple months or maybe a year earlier. Um, They're gonna promote him to interim CEO while they figure out all the compliance stuff, which is like pretty reasonable. Um, And uh, Parker had been super excited that Sachs was joining. Obviously like they have crazy beef now, but, um, but, back then like Sachs was like an incredible get for Parker and he was really stoked about this because Sachs was part of the PayPal Mafia and he'd scaled this enterprise SaaS company Yammer and sold it for a billion dollars or something to to Microsoft and was this kind of legend and it was it was crazy that David Sachs was going to work at an actual startup. There were a few of these deals that happened at the time, like when um uh what's his name? Uh John Carmack joined oculus that was like an insane moment obviously that worked out like phenomenally well and he's he was there for like you know years and there was no drama but getting these like legends to come on board your fast growing startup uh was just like you know it it just transformed the narrative around the company and it was like oh wow like this paypal guy who's already done a unicorn startup is now working at this company every single day uh it's not just like he's an investor he's like in the building actually growing this company that says so much about the opportunity here it doesn't just say it's some company that's going to sell for a billion it's like it's going to go to a hundred billion and so there's there's all this excitement but then all this acrimony very quickly and the board wants parker to stay at zenefits just in a more junior role you know like promoted to like you know chairman of the board or some board seat executive, you know, head of R&D, something like that. Um, and then maybe come back as CEO in a year. But Parker's like, no, I've done this before. Did that at SigFig and it was terrible. I don't want to report to the CEO. I, I either want to be the leader of the company or I'm out. And he has this incredible interaction with Lars Delgard. Um who's the uh, who's the board partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And Lars had built this company, Success Factors, which was a very, very similar business, uh, doing HR and enterprise SaaS. And he'd sold that company for $3 billion. And then he saw the exact same playbook playing out with Zenefits. And he was like, this is perfect. And so he jumps into the company, invests a bunch at, at Andreessen, he's on the board. And so he asks Parker, like, hey, like, you're out now. Like, what are you gonna do next? And Parker just says, like, without hesitation, like, I'm gonna do another startup. Like, I'm gonna be the CEO of a new company. And Lars, uh, as Parker tells it, like, Lars looks at Parker and says, like, I know when people are capable of doing another startup. Like, you're, you're probably burnt out at this point. This is such high growth. This is insane. You don't have another startup in you. And Parker's like, yeah, I took that personally. It's like the Michael Jordan moment in his career. He's just like, he's just like, yeah, yeah, right. I'm gonna prove you wrong. And you know, everyone likes to quote like chips in shoulders, put chips in pockets. And like this is clearly a turning point where it's like, you know, Parker's gotta come back from this and he's gotta build something even bigger and he's gonna do it right this time. And almost immediately, he's back with Rippling. And so he grabs this guy, Prasanna, who is an engineering manager at Zenefits, and he starts building and he goes back to YC He's running the exact same playbook. It's like, it's like get the great engineer to co-found the company with you. Go to YC, build the product, um, and he finds a new wedge. Like instead of this, like you know, one click to get your healthcare insurance for your company, now it's laptops so when you have a company you need to issue a laptop to someone it's always a hassle because you buy that laptop on amazon then like you have to provision it a lot of startups don't even have the ability to do that and then when the when the person leaves you have to like wipe the laptop to put it back into the rotation for the next employee um, if they're if they're out of the office or remote it's like how do you get them back and rippling just like solves all of that so they'll send a box out to an employee after they're terminated they'll just put the laptop in there rippling will actually uh, like clean off the laptop put new uh, put an entirely new like install of the os on that make sure it's all clean and then uh, and then send it back out and i remember when they went through YC, I mean, Parker emailed me again, I think, um, being like, hey, I want to sell you this, this product because I sell to every YC company. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's not that ambitious, like just laptops, like what's going on? But obviously I was completely wrong because he. this was just a wedge. Like he was always thinking like, I need to get to the employee record, that's the atomic unit, and then I need to build every single thing that touches the employee record. And so that includes payroll, healthcare, applicant tracking systems, like just everything that happens, reporting. And that's the idea of this like compound startup, which uh, we'll get to in a minute. Um, And so they solve this laptop provisioning problem like really, really well. They get some traction. They do a seed round after YC. Gary Tan comes back in for initialized great investment for him and this time they're much slower to series a it takes over two years you know most companies raise in 12 to 18 months that's what they tell you um but he takes his time and it's kind of unclear how how essential that was um the series a happens in 2019 with kleiner perkins seems like it's a pretty strong series a i think like 45 million um And so clearly there's a ton of progress that happens in those two years. Um, But there's less of a focus on this like, you know, raise a massive round every six months, like completely blitz scale and more like let's build a solid foundation, at least I think so. So um, Founders Fund comes in during COVID with $145 million Series C in 2020. Sequoia puts in 250 million in October of 2021. Bedrock puts in 250 million Series D in May of 2022. And then we get to the final boss, which is kind of, obviously Rippling's not public, like the game, the story is not over, but there is this very, very key turning point that happens uh this year 2023 when um when SVB collapses so if you don't remember uh silicon valley bank massive bank for all for basically every major startup everyone uses them use them multiple times um they had locked up all their customer deposits in long dated government bonds but these bonds were very low yield like 3% and so when interest rates rose, those bonds were less valuable and SVB became insolvent. And the market started recognizing this. There was this guy, Bryn Hobart, who wrote uh, an article about like identifying this problem that, look, as long as no one pulls their money out of SVB, everything's fine. But they technically do not have access to short-term capital to cover all their deposits. And so this could be a problem. And so the market starts picking up on this and one day the stock opens down like 90%, it's crazy. And so people start pulling deposits since only 250K gets insured by the government. And most companies, most startups keep millions of dollars in the bank. Like you don't have anywhere else to put it. You're not gonna, if you raise a $10 million Series A, that's gonna last you two years. You're not gonna go put that in stocks. Like you're, and what's the point of putting in bonds when bonds are yielding, you know, 1%? You'll just keep it in the checking account or the savings account or whatever. Like just keep it at SVB, it's easier. And that's what most people did. Or the, at least the keep like, you know, 20% or 50% of what they have there. And so a lot of people had a lot more than 250K there. And so there's a big, big, big risk that people were not going to be able to make payroll. It was very unclear what was going to happen. Would deposits be impaired, meaning you would only get 80, 90% of your money back. And more importantly, it it was unclear how long you would not have access to your money. And so it's a disaster, like VCs were just wiring startups money to help them pay bills in the short term. Um, it was a crazy, crazy time. Um, but Parker recognizes that tons of his tons of his companies, his clients, his customers are gonna be hurt from this. And so he goes into just overdrive and he raises $500 million over the weekend from Green Oaks. And I'm pretty sure Green Oaks is like a, like a very, very quantitative, Investment firm, like they really, really know their stuff. But he probably already had a relationship with them. Um, but he he gets this insane, massive funding round done uh, over the weekend. He switches Rippling's payment rails off of SVB in this like insane engineering sprint, and he makes sure that every Rippling customer can pay their employees on Friday, which is just crazy. It's crazy that he pulled this off so fast. Um, and so he like yeah just earns like all this all this insane like political and social capital and is kind of like i i I think of him as like the real hero of the silicon valley bank story like there were a lot of mistakes that were made there were a lot of there were a lot of people who just like you know everyone was fighting over politics and what should we bail out svb or not and panicking and like he was the, he was one of the few, he was probably other people, but he was one of the big people that like made a difference there. And it was just like awesome to see. So obviously there's been massive growth. Companies really well capitalized. Companies growing, you know, massively. Rippling's like great product. They have like two dozen SKUs now, but we need to talk about the actual strategy. So let's shift into strategy. And the big thing that I want to focus on is this idea of the compound startup. And I love it because it's really boring, but Parker has found a way to frame it in a very interesting way. It's almost like clickbait. He calls it, he'll, whenever he gives a talk on it, he'll say, the most common piece of advice you hear about startups is wrong. And and he pulls up quotes from, you know, his <laughs> people he has beef with. Um, usually David Sachs and Bill Gurley or something, I don't, I don't know, um, but he, uh, but he says, he says, everyone tells you that you need to focus at your startup. But in fact, you can build multiple products at the same time. You don't need to focus. And uh, my colleague, John Ludig, who I talked about earlier, wrote a great breakdown of Rippling um, that I'm going to quote from here just because it, it's such a good piece that I'll just read a bunch of it because it's, it, it, it's much better um, than, any, than any other analysis out there. Uh, so John says, in the 1970s, the tech industry was several orders of magnitude smaller than it is today, but each company had far larger product ambition, and each engineer had an outsized scope. Apple released its iconic Apple II computer in 1997, or 1977 with just 25 employees. One engineer built the entire file system. One engineer built the input-output and one engineer built the graphics. Microsoft, too, shipped its first operating system with just 100 employees. Even in the late 1990s, Google was launched with just four employees. Each company had to chart its own path for product strategy, go-to-market, business model, and hiring. As Silicon Valley matured, market sizes for tech companies grew 10X bigger than anticipated. Thousands of startups rose to chase these opportunities, fueled by internet adoption and cheap capital. Then came an insatiable demand for talent. Consultants, analysts, bankers flocked to high-tech salaries. Career ambition replaced technological ambition as the driving force of startups. Employee counts scaled faster than company productivity, accelerating growth in teams and revenue masked declining productivity per employee. Eventually, startups became so similar that playbooks emerged and generally they worked. Today, any startup can access an instruction manual for every aspect of marketing, sales, engineering, and even product strategy. For each playbook you follow, you're outsourcing your strategy in return for jumpstarting the respective function. But cheap cash, big teams, and playbook dependence comes at a cost, incrementalism. Tech's growth, in spite of declining productivity, means that incrementalism can still can still yield success. Founders and execs can tackle increasingly narrow problems and still make millions. Incrementalism is squandering Silicon Valley's potential. Many of the nation's most talented people are iterating on a tiny product surface area. First principles thinking is being replaced by sh- like by shortcuts like NPS optimization and bookings to burn ratios. Rippling is one of the few beacons of ambition in an increasingly incremental world. And I just, I love this because it's, enterprise SaaS is such a meme that it's just, you know, it's so boring, it's so incremental. And like it is, but this is an actual breakdown of why we feel that way. It's not that enterprise SaaS as a whole is boring. It's that the there's, there's so little innovation in the actual strategy that you just see the same thing playing out over and over and over again. And you just see, oh, okay, this person identified this little wedge, they built this little point solution and they scaled up and they ran all the all the usual playbooks and they got all the usual investors in, and it's boring. And Rippling is just so much more ambitious than this. And I just love that. And so let's talk about point solutions versus compound startups. And so um, uh, John identifies this with like, you know, the, the number of SaaS app, applications per organization has grown insanely like it's now over a hundred different apps in your average company which is just insane and, and if you run a company and you're listening to this like you probably have dozens and sometimes you don't even know how many you have because maybe your marketing team use their credit card to just like sign up for i don't know like frame io or a mailchimp account over here or like a clavio thing over there like you just accumulate all this plaque in the system and it's just a complete mess. And and then you're fine because everyone's moving really quick and you're like, oh yeah, I love that like my marketing team can just go buy a new analytics tool for like a hundred bucks if they want and they just put it on their credit card and I don't even need to think about it. And you just like the, the the core team never really thinks about like IT management or like actually thinking about like how they're integrating all these different systems. And then all of a sudden you hit, you hit a cliff where either all these apps get really expensive or it gets to become a nightmare to orchestrate all of them or you just aren't gaining insights across them because you have two oh your finance team decided to use this this spreadsheet software and your marketing team decided to use this spreadsheet software like you got you know Figma over here and you know something else uh, Canva over here and it's like why did you do that that doesn't make sense um, and and then also when someone gets hired, you have to provision them all of these apps, which means sometimes it's like literally go into Shopify, add the new hire there, go into Google Analytics, add the new hire there. It's like it can be like hours of work for if you have an HR person or whoever's adding them, it's like add them to everything. And then when they leave, you have to remove them from everything. And you have to do that quickly because like what happens if they take data from something that you're not supposed to look at or whatever. And so uh john says disconnected employee data and workflows are a massive tax tax on productivity which of course is like kind of a funny thing kind of funny thing to say but it's true like it is such a hassle and it just like it's not even that much work for a founder to do it's maybe like an hour or two a week or something like that for a lot of these functions but it's the most soul-sucking work that will just crush you and you will not want to do the important strategy work or think of that new product innovation or or you know work with your engineering team after that because you'll just be so bogged down with like this miserable experience like like the work should be thought-provoking and delightful and and like when you're working with all these like boring employee data workflows, like it really is a massive tax on productivity. So employee data encompasses more than just a username and password. Start dates, compensation, role, function, group within the company, even third party app credentials all give you context on the employee in the same way that Salesforce deeply understands external customer relationship data. Rippling understands internal employee data. At first glance it's easy to confuse rippling for a payroll system like gusto that is a category error rippling checks the hr system boxes but the overall platform cannot be described by a single software category it is a series of applications and workflows powered by employee data and this is the idea of the compound startup choosing between breadth or depth is a false dichotomy there is a set of common infrastructure needed for many business applications and so when you look at all these different point solutions they come in and they and they are better than the then the default whatever people are using sometimes that's just oh instead of paper we're doing it digitally or instead of doing it on premise in a server that you need to host we're doing it in the cloud or maybe it's free instead of a subscription or maybe it's collaborative instead of single player like all these little hacks that people use to like spin up these point solution companies uh they grow and grow and grow and then Every And then John, he looks at all these companies. So he says a typical series C software roadmap is largely predictable middleware, permissioning, reporting, approvals, compliance. Every point solution company has to build these capabilities from scratch. And this is like just a huge, it's like a huge wall that these companies hit where all of a sudden, instead of improving the core product and really expanding, They're now focusing on all this boring stuff that's required from their customers because their customers have gotten big and their customers need reporting and compliance and all these different things. And this is and this is why it's it's I've always wondered, like you see these point solution companies go through YC and you're like, wow, these guys built like a credit card company or something else or you know a, a spreadsheet software company or a, or a photoshop replacement they built this in like 3 months they got it out there and it's good you use it and it's good and then and then they and they grow and you're like yeah I totally understand why that's so much better than whatever I was using before like maybe I was using excel or google sheets and like this thing is so much better but then they hit this, this like middle age where they've raised a bunch of money, they're making money, the product's great. And then they just kind of like stop shipping new stuff. And then they talk about, oh, we're gonna do something new. And then there's like this big, there's this big pause. And I think a lot of that, what's actually going on behind the scenes, it's not that the founders don't want to build the second or third thing that would make the the bundle start working. It's that they're caught up in this like building the middleware, building permissioning, reporting, approvals, compliance. Like this is boring work and it's hard and it just sucks energy out of your product and engineering organization. And so the rippling plan and i think this is why it took them so long to raise that first round uh, after the seed is because they were really like parker was really really focused on laying this foundation of all the middleware and and so all the reporting so when they when they roll out a new product it already comes with all the permissioning all the approvals all the compliance all the reporting all the stuff that 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 you would normally have to do when you build one of these individual point solution companies um Rippling has abstracted that and they call this common infrastructure unity. It's a set of middleware capabilities on top of the employee graph, which is like the database that has all the employees and how they all relate to each other. So Rippling only needs to build middleware once, and then it can amortize the investment across all of its modules, freeing engineers to work on new product functionality. As unity gets stronger, the entire product suite becomes deeper breadth and depth don't have to be zero sum. So, Rippling's bundle is core to this strategy from day one and the effects ripple across the business, which I think is maybe where the name comes from. I don't know. I have to ask the team, Um, but I don't know where else the name would come from. But it's it's a funny pun if that's it. Um, And this bundling is a tailwind in sales conversations because like why pay $30 per employee per month for five different products which would be 150 bucks a month per employee when you can get a comparable offering in a single bundle for $50 and so the 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 value of rippling is that like you, you you're you're undercutting the competition on price because you can you can offer like this whole suite this whole bundle and this is this is why microsoft works this is why microsoft teams has been able to take so much market share from slack is because They don't charge for it like if you're already on the microsoft cloud uh i I don't even remember what it's called but office cloud or something like that like you just get microsoft teams for free and then the question is just like how much better is slack and for a lot of companies it's like "Ah, it's about the same so we'll just go with the free one Um, and so the other thing that this enables is that. Parker and his team can kind of figure out, well, where is the pricing power in this particular market? Like, should we undercut the competition on this price, on this particular SKU and this particular product, or should this be one that people are used to paying for? So it it will cost more and it'll drive more of that overall cost. Um, So it allows allows them a lot of flexibility as they kind of roll out. I think they have like 24 different products now, maybe more now. and you don't have to buy them all when you sign up but as you if you use Rippling as like kind of the base core of your of how you run HR like it's 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 pretty simple to just say okay yeah we'll just use the Rippling thing cuz it already integrates and it's not much che- it's not much more expensive so it's kind of running the Microsoft strategy but at like a startup scale which for a long time was thought kind of unthinkable it was like, no, you can never go after Microsoft. It'll just too complex, too impossible. Instead, what you should do is you should just focus on this little point solution and go after just some small area that Microsoft is failing at and then expand from there. The problem is that a lot of those companies, they did it, but then they never expanded. And 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 you know, and and they kind of struggle after that. So Parker still runs this company with like this maniacal focus that we've seen throughout his career and through his life. Uh, his job title on LinkedIn is customer support. He still personally responds to support tickets as a way to get closer to the customer and improve the product. And his desk is squarely in the middle of product and engineering. I love that. Um, and he also runs the company's rippling instance. like. He runs his own payroll uh, and he approves every hire and he makes administrative changes in the system. He's personally hired more than a thousand employees through the system and the product roadmap writes itself when you're solving your own problems. So, you know, the classical term for this is like dog fooding, but I think a lot of companies, um, they don't live this it it does take a lot of work to actually hold yourself fully accountable to it because in most companies the ceo would not be the one who's in charge of the rippling instance and actually running payroll that would be like a cfo function and of course rippling has a cfo by now but parker insists that he does it so that he can make better strategic decisions and better product decisions so Um, there there's also there's a bunch of other funny stuff we got to talk about so um, Parker also is just like like a crazy marketer too he I I I don't know if it comes from like the crimson or his his relationship with the media but he definitely understands marketing (laughs) Um, and so uh, a a couple years ago maybe a couple months ago I'm I'm not exactly sure when this happened but um, he put up a billboard Directly targeting his competitor, which is Gusto, that runs a, a similar product um, that runs payroll and HR. Um, Rippling, you know, would say that they're much more ambitious, but uh, and and Rippling would argue that they can scale to much larger companies, and so they put this on a billboard, basically. And Rippling says they put up a billboard that says, "Outgrowing Gusto, Presto Changeo." So. You know, one of these silly enterprise SaaS software billboards, uh, ridiculous. You see this on like the, the freeway when you're up there and the, um, you know, but it's a direct shot at, at Gusto and Gusto gets pissed. <laughs> so like you're actually just trying to steal our customers directly. This is too aggressive. Um, and so Gusto issues a, uh, a cease and desist letter to the billboard company clear channel outdoor they don't send it to rippling they send it to clear channel and clear channel just says like okay we got a cease and desist it's using the gusto name whatever we'll just take it down put something else up who cares um and typically there uh, again you know I, I think by now parker's learned like you know where the law lo- where the line is with the law and he knows to go right up to it and not cross it and so uh, the law is actually on his side in this in this in this case um The law states that you can, you can, uh, the, the law allows comparative advertising as long as it's accurate. You can put the other company's brand name up there as long as everything that you're saying about the other company is true. And, but then it's a weird question because like, what does it mean to be outgrowing Gusto? Like, how do we even quantify that? So Gusto, they sell HR benefits, payroll software. Rippling does the same, but adds in IT management and you know this employee identity platform. And so there's this question about like, okay, you know, Gusto would say, no, you don't ever outgrow Gusto. Maybe you buy Rippling for their IT management or you bolt on some other IT management. But we have plenty of big companies using Gusto. And that's fair. Um, but there's this interesting lesson where instead of taking Gusto to court or trying to change Clear Channel's mind, Parker does something like really silly with, I think his CMO, they respond to the cease and desist letter publicly in, with a poem. Uh, And and they, and they, they write it in Shakespeare style iambic pentameter and it's actually really long. It's like an entire letter. I'll just read a couple sentences. It says, "Our billboard struck a nerve, it seems, and so you phoned your legal teams who started shouting cease, desist, and other threats too long to list. Your brand is known for being chill, so this just seems like overkill. But since you think we've been unfair, we'd like we'd really like to clean the air." So, and it goes on and goes on and 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 it's, it's interesting because like the only point of the billboard was to get attention. And this poem got way more attention than that billboard ever could have. Like, people see those billboards and they just ignore them. But this got a whole TechCrunch article. People thought it was funny. I'm talking about it now. <laughs> like, like it's memorable. And this is a really important lesson. Like, you don't want to fight the small battles. You want to just win the big battles. And the big battle was just get attention for rippling and put it in this context and... And it framed Rippling as like, hey, yeah, they're cool. They didn't like go to court or like sue Gusto and go crazy. But they just like had some fun with it and wrote a poem. And so, you know, that's going to get them more attention. And I think there's like, you know, a, a really, really good lesson there. Uh, and it, it just shows like a level of like maturity. I think that it's like they, they went up to the line, but they didn't cross it. And that's like the new era in Parker's career, I think. So I wanna close with the the, the conclusion of John Ludig's article on Rippling because I think it's really, really poignant. Uh, and I'll just read it. So, SaaS wisdom, wisdom teaches us narrow lessons. Start by conquering a narrow market and expand from there. Add at least as much in ARR as you burn each year and build your product either horizontally or vertically. Rippling rejects these norms entirely. It ignores the memetic warfare of the Gartner quadrant. Its wedge was a data asset, not a narrow product. It doesn't let SaaS metrics dictate its strategy. Reminiscent of the foundational computing companies, Rippling shows what ambition in modern business software looks like. In the age of software incrementalism, Rippling is anachronistic. With ambition comes volatility, simultaneously enabling outsized success and idiosyncratic risk. An ambitious product strategy means an expansionary surface area, like the Roman Empire. (laughs) That's so funny. Everyone's talking about the Roman Empire right now. It can become vast, but is expansive to build. There is far more territory to defend against competition, but you can burn employees out along the way. But if rippling works, it shrinks the administrative drag on American business. Administration drives process and conformity. Less time on overhead, more time on creation. And I just love this. It's just like, it's like taking... It's such a narrative violation, not just in the actual strategy. Obviously, it's a huge narrative violation in the strategy, which is awesome. And and you can learn a lot from that. But I think it's also just it's just a crazy narrative violation in the storytelling. Like this is a boring enterprise SaaS company, right? Oh, no, it's not. Let's compare it to the Roman Empire and and go through like the most dramatic comeback story in all of Silicon Valley history. and so I just love this story. I'm really excited to dive in deeper here. I'm going to be interviewing the whole team next week and uh, should have a video out you know, soon. So stay tuned and thanks for, thanks for listening.